So pulling into the sidings at the reading corner today, we have M.G. Leonard and Sam Sedgman. They're co-authors of Adventures on Train series and winners of the British Book Awards Book of the Year Children's Fiction. Today, they're making a whistle-stop tour to talk about the fourth adventure in the series, Danger at Dead Man's Pass. Hi, Maya. Hi, Sam. Hope you had a good journey. Hello, Nikki. It's lovely to have arrived here. Hello. Yes, let me just put my suitcases down. Looked a bit heavy, that. Did. So, Maya, we talked earlier in the year, didn't we, about uh, your novel Twitch. And then you gave me a little sort of tantalising glimpse into what it was like to work with another author, Sam Sedgman, on this series, Adventures on Trains. Now, I know you've already talked quite a lot about how you came to write together, but I wanted to know a little bit more about this process of collaboration. You have four books in now and you're still talking to each other. So it obviously <laughs> works. <laughs> we are still talking to each other. And that's certainly um, certainly one of the wonderful things about writing together is it's writing with a good friend. And being an author is so often quite a lonely experience and very isolated. It's such a joy to be able to share the experience with someone else. So you might want to know about the technical process of literally mm. how do we write together. Um, and the way we do that is we start by plotting the whole book out together. So we sit down in a room together and we write down everything that we want to happen in the book. We write all the scenes down on post-it notes. We stick them up on a wall. And we rearrange them until we've got a really wonderful map of the book and the story that we're going to tell together. So after we've got together our book map of post-it notes on the wall, um, one of us takes that away and does basically a quick and dirty draft of the book from beginning to end. We call that draft zero. That's really easy to do generally because we've both agreed on all the big you know, decisions about what's going to happen in the story along the way. Obviously, when you write it, some problems might get, might get thrown up. Um, but then uh, that's the other person's problem, because then what <laughs> happens is we, we say, tag, your it, and we fling the manuscript through email back to the other person. And that's really how we do it. We basically do a relay race of alternating different drafts and um, working from a shared plan that we do at the beginning um, and then sort of fixing different issues and problems as we go. Um, the Highland Falcon Thief, the first book in our series, I think we did about 14 different drafts of that. It was a really long process. Um, but as we got more comfortable with the characters and the settings and uh, more comfortable with writing together in the process, we've got that down to quite a small number. Um, so Danger at Dead Man's Pass was was actually, I don't want to say it was easy to write, but uh, it, was a, it was a joy to write and, and relatively speedy to write as well. So I did the quick and dirty draft of Danger at Dead Man's Pass. Uh, and I have to say in 2019, I had two really good weeks. Sorry, yeah. 2020. Yes. <laughs> getting my years all mixed up. See, this is the problem date. The first week was in January when Sam and I actually did the trip that's in the book. And the second week was in early November when we actually went away together and plotted it. But one of the problems I had with the uh, quick and dirty draft is we knew it was going to be taking place. The adventure was taking place in the Easter holidays. Uh, and obviously it's a very spooky uh, journey up into the Harz Mountains and somebody has died. Uh, and I was trying to work out exactly what date Easter was because if you're going to write about death and about ghosts and scary things and witches 
at the same time as a religious holiday where someone arises from the dead, there is a very problematic crossover in imagery that we really wanted to avoid because this book is not about religion in any any kind of way. Uh, and so I had to ring up Sam and be like, okay, term time will end here, but what do we have Easter in this? Do we not have Easter in this? If it's taking place before Easter, then realistically what day? we had about a 40 minute conversation on what the actual date would be so that we could have an adventure before the Easter actual weekend. Mm. Uh, And that is a problem that obviously when you read the book, Easter doesn't really arise in it as anything, but actually it was a big problem for us to work out the mechanics of how and when the story would take place. But uh, when there's two of you, you can bat it backwards and forwards and it doesn't deplete your energy it actually usually excites you and it solves a problem and you move forward at greater pace so I love that idea about you know working in partnership and collaboration being energizing I often find collaboration brings a kind of fresh energy uh, to things too so you mentioned there that you did the journey Mm. (laughs) walked the walk (laughs) is that true for all of your train journeys or was it just for this one Sadly, it's not true for all of them. I wish it was. Um, So the Highland Falcon Thief was obviously, it's set on the last journey of the Royal Steam Train. And though there is a real Royal Train, the Highland Falcon is a fictional train. So we we weren't able to to ride on the Royal Steam Train. But we have both, you know, taken many railway journeys all over the United Kingdom. So we felt quite comfortable writing about that journey. The second book, Kidnap on the California Comet, I was lucky enough to do that journey myself. I um went uh, for my birthday a few years ago uh, on the the real-life California Comet, which is the California Zephyr, uh, which is a three-day train journey from Chicago to San Francisco. And that book is really, like, down to the screws in the windows accurate uh, of representation of what that train is really like. Um, The third book, Murder on the Safari Star, is set on a luxury rail safari in South Africa and... I would love if my bank balance <laughs> were, uh, were plentiful enough for us both to go on a wonderful sort of two-week glorious rail safari. But um, I mean, it's five grand a ticket just for the train, so there's no, authors can't afford that kind of a train journey, it, sadly. It, but no, for this one, Danger at Dead Man's Pass, we did do it because it is a train journey from the UK um, into Europe. And one of the great things about this book is that the journey is really accessible and it is something that you can do. It's, um, it's not, there's nothing particularly rare about the trains that Hal goes on. They're all active timetabled railway routes throughout Europe. And it was the first time that Mayor and I had done a long distance train journey together. And it was incredibly exciting for me to plan the journey and um, work out, you know, where we were going to stay, which nights we were going to have a sleeper train. Um, and the, I love this so much is that, the, you know, anyone who reads this book, you know, if they want, they can go on this journey themselves. And even the train itself at the very end of the line, the Brocken Barn, the steam railway that goes up the Hearts Mountains, that is a real timetable steam, steam train that goes up into the mountains every day in Germany. Uh, it's one of the last timetabled steam railways in Europe. So, yeah, taking this journey together was wonderful. And it was actually the longest time that we'd spent together as co-authors for a very long time. And we had a lovely moment when we were in Vernigrode in the snow, um, sort of walking down this very quiet, cobbled street together. And we realised, I cannot believe that, like, I've not wanted to tear your head off for the last five days. We must be really good friends. Um, <laughs> and it was so nice because it really did feel like we we sort of um, had, you know, reached a boundary in our friendship. And we were like, this is wonderful. We, we love travelling together as well as writing together. This is great. Yeah. Um, I think Maya enjoyed her first long distance train journey. Yes, oh, Maya. Yeah, I, 
obviously this series was something I really wanted to write, but the train bit was the bit that I was most uncomfortable with and obviously the bit that Sam was most familiar with and that's what he brings to the partnership. And the first time we wrote Highland Falcon Thief together, he dragged me, literally dragged me to the York Railway Museum and I expected to have an awful time and be bored and I was really like a petulant, sulky, oh, do we have to kind of child Uh, and was really surprised by, like, I was overwhelmed with emotion at some of these locomotives. It was an incredible experience. And I had, I did have a certain amount of dread about going all the way across Europe with Sam, you know, not always staying in a hotel, sometimes being in a sleeper train cabin together and thinking like, oh, how's this going to go? I was, I had, I was trepidatious. There you go. I was was (laughs) nervous. But at each point, I just, I don't know. I felt like a kid again. It was marvelous. And when we first got on the the sleeper train, I was like, I've never been on a sleeper train before. This is an incredible experience. Waking up at seven in the morning as the train pulls into Berlin and just, it felt magical and absolutely joyous. And to be able to be writing and having ideas about what might go into this book at the same time. So it was creative and I had no responsibilities. And you never know when you travel with someone, even if you've been friends with them for years, you can go on holiday with them and think, oh, I'm not doing that again. It was a joy. And it has to be said that these are, they're called adventures on trains. They're mystery adventures on trains. But there's a sense in which they're romances, too, because they are love stories to trains and to stations. And in this book that we're going to talk about, Danger at Dead Man's Pass, there's a love uh, for St Pancras Station. There's a love for the Gardenor. And, you know, you just feel that you are there. I'm so pleased you said that they're romances. I was a little worried where you were going with that for a minute. But no, I I can wax lyrical for hours about the glories of, of, of stations and trains. And, and like Maya said, you know, it really does make you a child again. This soaring wonder you have at these amazing buildings, many of which were built explicitly to, to elicit that feeling as you go into them. You know, Gardenor is built to be like grand and, and welcoming and St Pancras is, you know, very gothic and imposing. Like there's so much wonderful intentional architecture, but we really wanted to spoil the reader in this book because, you know, our other, it's quite different uh, to some of the other stories that we've told, which tend to be, you know, how and his uncle get on one train at the beginning of the book and the whole novel is set on board that train and they get off at the end but this one is a trans-european adventure so we have lots of different trains they go through lots of incredible stations and there's a lot more variety packed in there so one of the i have to say one of the hardest things that we had to do uh in the edits for this book was to trim out an awful lot of the the paragraphs gushing about how beautiful the stations were um because uh it, it was slowing down the plot somewhat you left the right amount in for oh, me to fe- for me to feast on it. That was really lovely. <laughs> and before we talk about the plot and the story, I just want to mention that some other kinds of trains. In you, you've talked about the the narrow gauge railway, um, but there's also a private train and train line in this story. I mean, who needs a private jet? Uh, is this a real <laughs> thing too? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, so in Kidnap on the California Comet, we introduced um, the billionaire August Razor, who has his very own private railway carriage, which is attached to the back of um, trains in America and and moved wherever he wants. That's very much a real thing, much more of a real thing in the mid 20th century before private jets became a thing. But I mean, I mean, the royal family's train is a private train. Many sort of world leaders have their own private trains. It is not as much of a thing as I would like it to be. Certainly, we can all agree if the rich and famous stopped having private jets and started having private trains, uh, it would be an awful lot better for the climate. But the the family, the rich and powerful family at the heart of this mystery, uh, the Kratzenstein family, are a successful family of sort of railway tycoons. And they have a very uh, historic private train uh, that clatters up and down this narrow gauge line and can also go on the main lines in Germany. Mm-hmm. So um, we wanted them very much to have a real private train uh, that would be something really exciting that readers could uh, love um, exploring with us. Yeah, and not to give anything away about the plot, but it's the funeral train. It's the train that is used to go up the mountain to the funeral. Exactly. So we have, so far in this series, we've had the Highland Falcon Thief, we've had a kidnap. And we've had a murder. They're all mentioned in the title. This one just says danger. Doesn't tell you as much about the crime. So can you give us a clue? Well, we wanted to be um, purposefully obtuse about it because we don't know as a reader at the beginning, Hal and Uncle Nat don't know exactly what it is that they're getting involved in. There's a family curse someone has died, it could be murder, it could be completely natural. But the person who's died, uh, when they're found, they have a look of absolute horror on their face. So there's that. that's what's encouraged the rumours of the curse. And there's lots of talk, but no one knows what the truth is. And because a lot of this adventure is discovering exactly what the truth of the situation is, we did not want to give it away in the title of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings me to another point, that this is actually set in the present day, or, you know, it's contemporary because we're on the Eurostar. But as I was reading it, I really felt that I I was reading some classic fiction. It felt like it could have been set in the 19th century. It felt like a Sherlock Holmes mystery it felt like German gothic you know the Reichenbach falls or wherever it is that Holmes falls to his death I was sort of channeling all of that so I I want to know how deliberate that is Oh, 100% deliberate. I'm so thrilled you've said that. Um, the Hound of the Baskervilles was one of the main kind of sources of inspiration for this uh, for this story in the sense of, you know, our detective travels from London, uh, well, from Crewe in our case, uh, travels into a mysterious place. It's not Devon, uh, it's Germany, uh, and investigates a possibly supernatural mystery. Um, structurally and sort of atmosphere-wise, that was definitely one of the inspirations we were drawing from. But as well as that, it's really lovely to hear you say that you felt it was somehow timeless because we we do want to we're always very clear that we're writing contemporary stories that are set in the present day um because i think it's really important that readers you know see you know adventure is possible in the present day um but we also try not to tie it too much to you know contemporary pop culture or things that make it very specifically tied to this year. So, you know, we we don't mention the coronavirus pandemic, um, but we do try and write with a sense of timelessness that draws on this sort of long heritage of lots of other kinds of writing, which I'm sure Maya will want to talk about. Mm. <laughs> well, I have to say, so this this is our most 
literary book so far in that it references quite a lot of other fiction. So when we thought of what kind of a vibe and what kind of a mood we wanted to elicit um, and the whole kind of family curse concept, that was where the Hound of the Baskervilles um, came in. But also Kratzenstein is uh, the name of a real uh, scientist from the 1900s who apparently was one of the scientists that inspired Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein, not the creature. I should just add. Uh, and also we discovered when Sam suggested we go up the Brocken uh, for this book, because Sam, I didn't know the Brocken barn existed. Uh, and Sam's like, oh, there's this amazing railway. And I was like, oh. and then he was like, it's where part of Faust is set. I was like, ding, 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 ding. Yes, absolutely. Because my favourite period of uh, literature is from the 16th century, because I did my master's in Shakespeare and I'm a big fan of Christopher Marlowe and the Faust story. And, you know, so I I knew quite a bit about Goethe. And when I realised we were going up into that part of the world, I was like, oh, we can just pull lots of threads from like, really old classic German literature, but I wanted to balance it with good um, children's literature as well. So we reference Emile and the Detectives. One of the children loves that book. That's their favourite book in the story. Uh, and there are libraries in this book. Mm-hmm. So there's there's lots of very gentle. It's all in there in the layers of the onion, but it doesn't overpower the main story at all. Uh, but I really enjoy that aspect of it. It's one of my favourite things to just sneakily try and get extra detailed references in there, along with, of course, addressing languages, because this is the first time Hal has taken a journey into countries that don't speak English. So he encounters French and he encounters German. And what he encounters in Germany is a a group of children who all speak great English. And it's the first time he realises, oh, I, I don't speak any French or any German, and they do. And that's the, I think that's one of the things about being English that we all discover when we first start traveling that actually in other countries, language is so much more of a priority and it's so much mm-hmm. of, a, of a powerful thing to have. So, yes, lots of language, lots of literature in this one. And it has to be said that the illustration adds to that feel of neo Gothic because a lot of the buildings so that sort of connects and gives it this 19th century gothic literature feel Mm. as well you must be pleased with the illustration oh we cannot stop waxing lyrical about how incredible elisa paganelli our illustrator is she does all of our wonderful covers and she does you know 30 to 40 illustrations per book as well and one of the incredible things about her is that she's able to well firstly see into our heads which is so weird, um, and draw exactly what we want and bring it to life. But um, we're in every book, we have Hal, uh, our main character, who, whose sort of super skill is that he's really good at drawing. So the, the illustrations that you see in the books are Hal's own illustrations. But in every book, Hal's illustrations develop and change slightly. So in Murder on the Safari Star, he started drawing with charcoal. Uh, in this book, he's drawing in pen and ink. And Elisa manages to change her own drawing style to suit what Hal's doing in the in the story, which is incredible and so adaptable um, and really beautifully done. So because this book, Hal is drawing in pen and ink, it's a lot darker and a lot sharper. So a lot of those brilliant Gothic imagery that you mentioned, um, we have a wonderful image of Uncle Nat waiting for Hal at the school gates in chapter one, which is full of shadows and the sharp filigreed ironwork on the gates of the school. And it just is immediately incredibly atmospheric and draws you into the story. And I do love all of the covers, but Danger at Dead Man's Pass at the moment is my standout favourite. I think it's just 
full of action and drama. And I just, uh, I cannot wait to get my hands on a final copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, you mentioned Hal and his drawing and drawing is one of the ways in which he, it, it helps him to solve problems. He is a super solver um, of problems. And I wondered, your your dedications in this book are even in code. I mean, how cruel <laughs> is that? <laughs> but um, I wonder what fun you have kind of playing around with puzzles. Is this part of the collaborative process as well? I am obsessed with games and puzzles, and I have been ever since I was growing up. Uh, and I used to have a company in London that made treasure hunts up for adventurous Londoners, murder mystery treasure hunts, uh, kind of as an, an events company. Um, so I'm obsessed with puzzles and games and riddles and things like that. And you mentioned that our um, dedications to this book on the first page are in code, which hopefully gives you a flavour of, of the sort of mysteriousness that we're playing with uh, throughout the rest of the book. There is an important code that comes into play at some point in the story, as well as a few other kind of tricksy, puzzly things too. Um, but for me, writing a detective story is always really about writing a puzzle. You know, you're thinking about the different clues, the different people, pieces and how they fit together and for me as an author I'm always trying to weave a story where you reach a point at the end of the book where everything slots into place in a really satisfying way that's my ultimate end goal with all of this Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and we decided to write the um the dedication at the beginning in code because obviously throughout the book there is coded messages and Hal solves them. And we wanted to give the readers something that if they really wanted to solve something that Hal does not solve, they can do the dedications and work out exactly what it says, because I think that's one of the lovely challenges. I mean, when I was a kid, I had uh, a younger brother, 18 months younger than me, I still have, shouldn't say past tense. And one of his favourite things to do would be to find my diary, which was always hidden, uh, and then read it out aloud to embarrass me if I'd wrote a boy that I fancied or something like that. So I actually developed codes and wrote my diary in code to prevent my brother from being able to humiliate me uh, on a regular basis. So code is the one thing that I actually uh, have a little bit of experience of using. So it was fun to integrate it into this story. Now, you originally signed for four books, but I understand there are going to be two more. From what I've read, there's going to be an Australian and an Arctic um, adventure. I won't ask you to tell me too much about those, but it could run and run. This series could take us all around the globe. Where would you most like to go that you haven't already planned to go? Well, for me, eagle-eyed readers will spot uh, that we introduced uh, a couple from Japan in Murder on the Safari Star. And it's my dear joy uh, to at some point take Hal and indeed myself uh, to explore the railways of Japan. Japan really knows how to do railways. Uh, They were the first country to invent the high-speed train in the 1960s with the the bullet train, the Shinkansen, and they still have some of the most incredible fastest trains on the planet. The culture of railways there is really amazing. Um, Every station sells uh, something called ekiben, which are sort of special boxed meals that are designed to be eaten on trains. And every station has its own speciality ekiben food. And some people travel all over Japan specifically to eat the different foods on offer at the different stations, um, which just tells you everything you need to know about the Japanese. I love it. I love it. And Maya, what about you? I love travelling by train because of what's 
outside the window and what you get to see in real time. Mm-hmm. I'm not so much addicted to the train love of the machine because I don't have that kind of a brain. But for me, one of the things that we've talked about writing at some point would be a South American train adventure. Uh, and there are some incredible like flora and fauna in South America, in Argentina and Bolivia. I would really, really love to experience from the safety of a train because obviously I'm not so wild about hacking through the rainforest because I'm a bit of a coward when it comes to like life threatening situations. But from the safety of a train, I would absolutely love it. I've also seen some incredible photography of um a train yard cemetery, which is in Bolivia, where they uh, basically have sent their trains to die, as in their rusted old hulls. And it's very kind of eerie and kind of romantic. All the steam trains are just like like shipwrecks almost. So I'm, I'm excited about South America. Um, but I, yeah, definitely from the safety of a uh, luxurious train carriage, please. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, do you know, it's clear to me that you're not going to run out of good ideas anytime soon. And so this is a book series that will run and run and run. And I hope that you'll uh, pop back into my station at some point uh, to discuss future adventures. Thank you so much for joining me today in the Reading Corner. Thank you so much for having us. It was a real treat. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.